Well, um, we are still in our series going through the book of John, and uh, we have an incredible conversation today. We're going to continue our um, eavesdropping of the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. So if you have your Bibles open, um, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to pick up verse 27. Scriptures will be up here on the screen as well. This is John chapter 4, picking up at verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. By your grace today, would you soften our hearts. With your truth, would you sharpen our minds. By the power and presence of your spirit, would you transform our actions and our habits that we might look more like Christ, that we might live and love like Christ. Would your spirit lead me and guide me as I um, preach this text today? May it be helpful to my brothers and sisters. Christ, would you be glorified? Thank you for the great joy it is to be here with them in your presence. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So, she left her water jar. She left her water jar. Those words are so down to earth. But they are overflowing with a heavenly truth. So she left her water jar. Earthy words. Bone and blood, clay and water but they convey a divine glory. And today we're going to look at the overflow of meaning in these simple words as we revel in the second half of this compelling passage in which Jesus breaks social convention, in which Jesus enters highly controversial territory by crossing barriers, by talking to a Samaritan, by talking to a woman, A woman with baggage and a bad reputation. So she left her water jar. What she left behind, why she left it, and its outcome are things that we should all come to see. And so let's do this. Let's set the stage. Let's get on the same page regarding the story and lean in and hear what Jesus has to say in this crucial conversation. One so important that the author John has given an entire chapter to this interaction. Now as we experience the beauty of this text, in the end we're going to see that there are three things forgotten. Maybe you can hold on to that. There are three things wonderfully forgotten that just might help us to remember, remember the beauty of the gospel. So we will come back to that. Now, last week we saw how Jesus was making a renewed worshiper out of this woman. And so let's go back to the scene of the kindness. 
It's the full furnace of day. It's noon. The sun is at full strength. It's as if all the shade and all the shadows in Israel have melted, have evaporated, have vanished. And Jesus has had a long day of walking, heading north from Jerusalem up the ancient road the patriarchs took. This is the road that Abraham walked on. This is the road that Isaac walked on. This is the road that Jacob walked on. That is, 12 sons and family walked on. All the big names of the Old Testament. And this was once a well-worn road, but now no good Jew really walked this stretch anymore because this was the place to be avoided. This is enemy soil. This is half-blood territory. This is traitor territory. This is Samaritan land. Samaritans, those who had compromised the scriptures, those who had betrayed God and betrayed their people. See, the Jews and the Samaritans, they were like oil and water, but way more volatile. They were more like nitro and glycerin. They were like uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, They're like Taylor Swift and Kanye West, or Kanye West and anyone, and it really... See, Jesus is walking on an ancient blood feud land. That's where he's walking. And he, now he's, he's thirsty, he's, he's tired, he's exhausted, he needs some quiet. He sent his ragtag crew of apprentices off to get some food, and he is now at Jacob's well. It's an ancient well with cold, refreshing water, some 135 feet flowing beneath the hot, hard soil that his feet are on. And I tell you, even in our day of bottled water and AC and in a nice van that you go touring Israel in, you pull up and you pull that water out of that well. It is a grace. It is a gift. You can visit that well today. It's still there. It's still flowing with water. In fact, this is what it looks like today. You can see the well there, the pulley system, the bucket that goes down the 135 feet. Now, it's a little hard to picture Jesus' interaction with the woman with this picture because this is in the basement now of a Greek Orthodox church. It's, it's protected, it's underground because they built up over it. So in order to help us to understand this interaction a little bit more, uh, let's see what it looked like um, back a few hundred years. So let's go to this picture. You can see here, I love this, you can see the women coming to the well there with, with the jar. They would have had to go down these steps because there wasn't actually an ancient Byzantine church there at one point. It was destroyed, but it was covered up. But this well was originally just sitting on the ground there. There was nothing covering it. In this picture, though, you can see they have to go down to it. Now this well is in the West Bank near the ancient city of Shechem or the modern day city of of Nablus. It's still contested land between the Palestinians and the Jews and it sits in a valley between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Now I want to show you this other image. Um, Here is the location so we can get a visual in our minds how this plays out because this geography is important. There's theology in the geography because of the story of redemption that God has written. There's theology in this geography because of the story of redemption that God has has written. So much has happened here. This is where Abraham, Abraham, when he first came into the promised land, this is where he 
had a meeting with God. God spoke to him. God made a promise to him that this would be the land that he would give his people, that the promise would come through his people, that all the nations would be blessed through his people who were in this land. And he built an altar here in this place. It's Genesis 12. This is where the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah, happened from Genesis 34. Terrible, terrible story. This is where a whole village of people was slaughtered in revenge. Terrible, terrible things happened here. So much blood shed here. This is also the place where Joseph's bones are buried. Not Joseph as in Mary and Joseph, you know, the parents of Jesus, but Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. When they came out of Egypt, they brought his bones and they buried them here. Speaking of which, when Israel came up out of slavery, out of Egypt, Moses had told Joshua what he wanted the people to do, God's instructions. They were to go to this place. They were to go to where these two mountains were, and they were to recommit themselves to God. Six tribes would go up on Gerizim to echo the blessings of trusting in God. Six tribes would go up on Mount Ebal to echo the curses of not trusting in God. The priests down in the valley below speaking the word of God. It had been a long time since they come out of Egypt and they had wandered and now was the time to recommit themselves to the covenant in the promised land. This place is pregnant with stories of redemption. It's loaded with atrocities as well. Now the ancient city of Shechem is there right between the mountains of blessing and cursing and right there is Jacob's well as you can see. Now the, the woman in our story is from the village of Sychar which is there over to um, the right so she would have walked from east to west just over half of a mile to get to that well so she's going this way Jesus is coming from the bottom of the picture up to the top south to the north he's going to thread between those hills those mountains and head on up to Galilee that's where the road went through those mountains so he's going this way and quite literally their paths cross and intersect at this well now I'm going to show you one more picture and then we'll really get into the text but I think this will will help you guys as well um, these pictures are from 1898, uh, from the 1890s. Notice a few things here. Man, I, I, love, I love these pictures. Uh, look at this woman here to the left with the jar on her head, the amphora. It has the ears on it so you can hold it, but they would put it on their head like she's doing there, coming up out of where the well is. And then you have, I believe it's these five women over here on the right. You can see Mount Gerizim in the back. It's right there in view. And you, you can see some of them are wearing a white clothing as, as well. Keep these in mind because they are important details for our story. So let's go back again to the scene. Jesus is hot. He's sweating. He's hungry. And he's alone. For Jesus, the journey from Jerusalem through Samaria, he would have had to traverse 35 miles of rocky, hilly terrain. He arrives here and he's thirsty. And then... Slowing footsteps on hard ground. A woman approaches. And as we heard last week, Jesus asks this Samaritan, this woman for some water. And this conversation ensues. This incredible conversation. A deep theological conversation. And the amazing thing is, Jesus sees her. 
Like he really sees her. He sees into her heart. He knows her wounding. He knows her guilt. He knows her shame. And so he tells her of her traumatic past. He speaks of her painful present. He is the source of her future hope and her future happiness because he is the source of living water. He is the Messiah who brings life by the power of the Spirit because of the work that he is doing. And as her heart is coming to life with the joy of meeting Jesus, they hear more footsteps. And this time it's a whole crew of men. A large group approaches So back to our passage, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. So they're they're in this conversation and then the disciples approach. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? In other words, they don't ask her what's going on. They don't ask him what's going on. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples arrive upon the scene of this unconventional kindness and they're amazed. But even more so, they're concerned. Because Jesus is breaking all kinds of social codes at this point. He's talking to a Samaritan. Someone that was considered a half-blood A political and religious other, strike one. He's talking to a woman, strike two. He's talking to a woman with baggage, with a bad reputation, strike three. This is concerning. It's a break of convention, a break of decorum. It seems like it's a lack of wisdom on this rabbi's part. See, Jesus has crossed racial, ethnic, religious, and social barriers in this act of kindness. And so the disciples arrive, and honestly, they're slack-jawed, and their body language is like, what is happening? This does not seem okay. I mean, this is the world that they lived in. This is part of the cultural norm. Men were not supposed to talk to women in public. I don't have this written up here, but let me read it to you. This is a quote from one of the rabbinical writings, and it says this. It says, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men might think. A man shall not talk with a woman on the streets, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men might say and this is one of the um, lesser sounding or lesser harsh ones uh, that you can read there's a ton of these things so this is the world that they live in but let's get this right Jesus was not held captive by the sexism or racism of his day not in any way shape or form like Jesus looks at popular convention, he looks at these prevalent social codes and ideologies, and he says, no, not today, not ever. And he removes the barriers with his grace. And this is so fascinating. This story simultaneously challenges this woman's sin and says the way she has been living is, is not okay, And at the same time lifts her up 
and gives her this incredible dignity. She's an image bearer of God that Jesus loves and respects. And so if anyone ever thinks following Jesus by necessity somehow leads to sexism, to bigotry, or racism, they have not properly read the scriptures and they're not seeing the Jesus of this book. I think that's a lesson we need to hear in our day and age. See, here's how it should have gone according to cultural norms. Jesus is parched. He is exhausted. He is tired. He has every reason to be hangry, right? A Samaritan woman walks up to him when he's trying to rest and relax. And Jesus, a devout holy man, does what is right. He dismisses her as walking pollution, considers her a non-entity, scoffs and walks away preferring thirst and fatigue rather than a drink from her filthy jar. He will have nothing to do with her. But not so with Jesus. The unconventional love of God engages her with dignity and kindness. Man, how beautiful is this? How our world needs this. Now, At the disciples' arrival, this Jesus-transformed woman forgets about her jar and goes running back to town. She has something to say because an explosion of joy in her chest. The missiologist, that means someone who studies missions, evangelism, Leslie Newbegin said that evangelism begins with a sort of explosion of joy. And it becomes and overflow, and that's what we see with her. She came as a marginalized outsider, and how does she leave? As an eager missionary, full of joy. Radical transformation by the grace of God. We're going to come back a little bit later to her eager and enthusiastic gospel message that she preaches. Now, all of this leads to another incredible conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and I'm going to tackle this in three parts. We're going to look at true soul food. Anybody like soul food? True soul food, a non-anxious urgency, and faithful witness, and powerful presence. So what we're going to look at is true soul food, a non-anxious urgency, and our faithful witness, his powerful presence. So let's have some soul food here this morning. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So while she goes running to tell others about this Jesus, a conversation ensues. And they're like, Jesus, you need to eat some food. We know you're, you're tired. You must be exhausted, by right. You must be exhausted right now. And, and then <laughs> he uses this opportunity to teach. And he's like, food, food. I've been eaten. You've been gone. And I've been feasting. Now, you can imagine, they're, they're confused at, at this point. They're like, does he have heat stroke? What's going on? What do we What do we do? Like, does he have a secret stash of granola bars in his robe? Like some, some rabbi trail mix? We don't, we don't know what, what's the deal. 
See, Jesus is using the natural to help explain the supernatural, just like he did last week with the water and the spirit with the woman. He's going to be using food right? and, and the will and the work of, of God here with the disciples. And so Jesus makes it plain. He says, look, what energizes my soul, what feeds me, what nourishes me is doing the work and the will of my Father. And see, though his stomach was grumbling and though, though his mouth was, was bone dry, he, for, he forgot all about it when a greater priority walked up to him and stood face to face with him. Serving God is the true soul food of our master. And serving God is the true soul food of an apprentice. So here's what happens when the Holy Spirit enters into us and changes us and transforms us. He renews our desires and our delights. He reorders and reworks our priorities. And I'm sure you've had this ha- happen to you. Uh, think about it. Like, have you ever had something going on and then you've been captivated by something and then you forgot what you were feeling or thinking because your attention's on something else? Like it, it happens all the time. Maybe um, you've been so consumed by something that you lost track of the time that you were in or that you were hungry. Or maybe, maybe you forgot you had to go to the bathroom. This happens with my kids all the time, right? They come up and they pull on, on, on my leg and it's like DEFCON 1 right now. A nuclear explosion is about to happen. They're like, I have to go to the bathroom. And then they're like, ooh, video game. Or like, ooh, toy. Or ooh, like something captures their attention and then like a minute or two goes by and I'm like, hey, don't you have to go to the bathroom? No, I'm fine. Like, what just happened? They're captivated by something. Something is filling their soul. And everything else is put on back burner or sidelined. Why? Passion, love, delight. They have a way of putting other things on hold, suspending them for the moment. While we are looking upon something amazing. And this is amazing. Jesus is so energized. He is so nourished by showing this broken hearted woman the love of his father. That all he can hear is this conversation. And it's no longer his stomach that, is, that he's hearing. Because something of greater import is in front of him. He is living out this verse. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He hears her heartache more than he hears his own physical needs at this moment. He is other-centered in the most incredible way. Showing her the love of heaven was not begrudging obedience. Okay, dad, I'll talk to her. He gets to show her his love. He gets to present grace. And it nourishes him. It feeds him. It excites him. Serving God becomes food and energy for the soul of apprentices who follow this kind of master. Serving God is the true soul food of an apprentice. Now, that said, maybe some of you have felt really dry lately. And you've just felt really disconnected from God. Maybe you feel like a spiritual raisin. Right, and you, you know what I mean. But the, the confusing bit is you've been reading your Bible maybe even more than ever. And you're, you're praying like every day. And you haven't missed a Sunday in a long time. You got all your, your gold stars, right? You haven't missed con group in ages. But there's something off. Maybe it's because you're not serving. 
Maybe it's because you're not reaching out. Maybe it's because you're not giving away the good stuff, sharing the love that he's been pouring into you. Maybe it's because you're all damned up and stagnant. Because we are blessed to be a what? A blessing. We are loved to give away love. We are not meant to be gospel cul-de-sacs. We're meant to be gospel conduits, not gospel swamps or ponds, but, but gospel streams of living water. And as we listen to him and trust and speak to others and engage with them and give away the love of Christ, it's not just giving something away, it's getting something wonderful. And we feast on the grace of Christ as we do. And it changes us, it, it transforms us. Serving God is a true soul food of an apprentice. Serving others is one of the ways that we feast on the grace of God. Because if you're anything like me, you need the grace of God just to witness to others. And you need to consume his grace to engage people and to love them well. Now, that's one lesson that we learn in here. Jesus is going to teach us some more regarding how worshipers witness. He teaches about a non-anxious urgency. Look at verse 35 through 38. He says, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? This is him talking about a a well-known proverb or, or a common saying. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Okay, so a few things here. Jesus is going to refer to this common saying. Uh, There's four months between planting and the first harvest. So it was a common saying, you know, are there not months, you know, to to wait until the harvest comes? In other words, it was a way of saying, be patient. Things will happen in their time. Relax. Don't be so eager. Just hold on. Things will happen. But not so with the kingdom of God. And I know this is going to sound a little bit contrary to what I've said many times, talking about unhurried presence. He's saying things happen powerfully, immediately, simultaneously in the kingdom of God because the spirit is at work moving and breathing planting is happening seeds are going in the ground and harvesting is happening right away people are coming to life by the power of the spirit now because I have come it's happening now it's happening concurrently planting and harvesting hearts are being changed because people are hearing the good news and he says look Lift up your eyes and see. He uses three words here regarding vision because he, he wants to change the paradigm of these apprentices. He, and he wants them to know that God is moving. God is doing things. It's not, it's not just for some day, 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe another generation. His spirit is moving now. And he says, expect. Expect for the supernatural to happen. Expect for my spirit to take a seed that was planted in a moment of gospel testimony and expect that fruit will come up in a moment because God's brought them to life. Expect that it'll happen. He's moving. We should live with a, a, a non-anxious urgency when it comes to evangelism. 
Plant seeds, speak the word, expect God to move, expect conversions and rejoice that he is doing these things together. We need to think supernaturally. And I think there is this latent secularity, this, this latent practical atheism that is within us that says, yeah, we'll do, do these things, but really, like, they're not going to be converted. And this probably won't have that great of an effect, but we're supposed to do it. Like, No. We preach the word. We love people well. The spirit transforms them. God is on the move. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Now, as he teaches this, he says, see the fields that are white for harvest. And most likely, here's what's happening. There is quite literally a field of harvest that's walking towards him at this point. Do you remember the pictures that I showed you earlier? Some of those women were in white outfits, white traditional outfits, right? I don't know some of you have been there. You've talked about this and you've seen these pictures before. You know that as you look at that road and there's a mass of people coming and they're wearing white outfits, kicking up dust along the way, walking to the well from the village of Sychar, it looks like a field of wheat that is ready to harvest. Because when that field of wheat's ready to harvest, like all the heads of the wheat are, are white, right? So it looks like a field is walking. Jesus says, look, even now, even now, We have to live with an expectation that the gospel is bringing people to eternal life, that the harvest is now, the time for salvation is now. Apprentices live with a non-anxious urgency to advance the kingdom of God. Apprentices of Jesus live with a non-anxious urgency to advance the kingdom of God. And the beautiful thing is that we are called into this mission, but we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to think that it's all on us. It doesn't rise or fall on us. We are part of a work that God is doing, not just now through our brothers and sisters, but also throughout all of time. Right? There is this bit in here where he says, you are entering into the work that others, others have done, and you get to reap the rewards. So he's done the work, we get to enter into that work. But, but more so, let's, let's think about it with Valley Community Church. We've been here 50 plus years. So when we see a whole load of students get baptized like we did, we get to participate in the work that many did before, that George and Evelyn Michelin did before, that, that the Harpers did, the, did before, that the Vites did before, when they planted this church 50 plus years ago and the gospel was being preached year to year to year to year. We get to enter into that. When somebody who loathes Jesus, loathes the scriptures, and thinks this is all insanity, falls on their knees and professes Jesus is Lord here in a service, we get to enter into the work of people who have been preaching the gospel for decades. More so, hundreds of years. We get to enter into the work of the apostles. We get to enter into the work of Christ because the Spirit is moving and breathing. It's not on us, but we get to be a part of this. Apprentices live with a non-anxious urgency to advance the kingdom of God. And this takes us to the last portion of the text. Our faithful witness and his powerful presence. Pick up at verse 40 with me. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard 
for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. (laughs) After the two days, he departed for Galilee. So this town, Sychar, is stirred up by the news of Jesus because of this woman's witness. And this whole field of Samaritans comes marching towards them because of this outcast woman who was alone and shunned and running from people. Now she's an ambassador to them. She says, come and see. And they do. And then they meet Jesus. So don't miss this. Her witness has brought other people to his presence. Her witness has brought other people to his presence. This one that others avoided and that once avoided others going to the noon, midday, the hottest time of day. Now she runs through the heat to get to those who were her enemies to preach grace. To show them who Jesus is. And we get this amazing line. Look at verse 42. The Samaritans are speaking to the woman. They say, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So her faithful witness becomes the conduit through which they come to hear Jesus, and Jesus' presence is that life-changing presence for them. There's a witness about him, and then Jesus personally speaks to them, and his presence transforms them. And then these Samaritans call Jesus the Savior of the world, which historically is the most mind-blowing thing that Samaritans would call a Jew the Savior of the world. An enemy has become their Lord. It's a miracle. The Spirit has transformed their hearts. And so God uses our faithful witness but it is his powerful presence that saves. We are drawn into this drama of redemption. We get to be a part of it. It's amazing. God uses our faithful witness, but it is his powerful presence that saves. I want to take a, a breath here um, and acknowledge, you know, that, that might sound great, but for some of you, it, it feels like a burden. Or it makes you anxious, actually. Because you're like, well, that's great uh, for some of you, but you don't know my story. I got nothing to bring to this table. Um, You don't know how wounded I am. I have too much baggage. Don't overlook what this woman says when she goes running into town. What did she say? She says, come and see a man who did what? Who told me? Everything that I've done. Who is she speaking to? The people who are telling all the slanderous stories about her. The people she was avoiding. The people that she went through the heat of day to to avoid. She runs to them. And she, she says, remember all the garbage that I've done? I met someone who told me. All about it. Look, she doesn't shy away from her past. She doesn't shy away from her sins. She doesn't pretend like it's not there in order to show forth the glory of God. Rather, it becomes a springboard for her talking about the grace of God. If this woman, in all of her trauma, shame, guilt, insecurity, depression, loneliness, confusion and brokenness can be a faithful witness through her wounds, don't you think you can be? 
our past is not a barrier to being a witness. It becomes the way of our witness. In Christ's wounded hands, our wounds become our witness to his grace. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy wants to use shame and guilt to shut you down, to put, to put a, a basket over the light of God's grace. You know what? You, you probably shouldn't tell your testimony that way. It's, just, it's, just, it's too raw. You know, it, we're, we're in a nice civilized church community. You don't want, you don't want people to know that you slept with them, that, that you took this, that you did this to them. You don't, want, you don't want people to know that because you want to be a good representative of Christ. Let's keep that stuff hidden. And meanwhile, you're hiding the fact that God's grace took you from that to this. That he has brought you from that death to this life. His grace moves through those wounds and becomes a witness to our transformation and to his goodness. So amazing. And when our wounds are tended to by this Jesus, when our wounds become avenues of witness, we can go right into the midst of those we avoided. We could go right into the midst of those who were cruel to us. We now have the resources of, of soul because of the Spirit to go to those who resent us and those we once resented, to go to those who we call our enemies and show them the love of Christ and be unashamed because he took ours. Worshippers witness. So let's step back now and see how these lessons interplay with one another. Let's see them together. In this passage, Jesus teaches us that serving God is the true soul food of an apprentice of Jesus. Serving God by loving others nourishes our souls. And apprentices of Jesus live with the non-anxious urgency to advance the kingdom of God. We live with expectancy, excited that we get to partner with what God's doing, knowing it's not all on us. It's on his people by the power of the Spirit. He will build his church. So we can enter into it regardless of, am I going to fail? Am I gonna? He, he's not going to fail. Speak the truth. Love well. And God uses our faithful witness, but it is his powerful presence that saves. We have agency, but he is the Lord of all creation. And this good news doesn't exclude any of us because of our past history, because of our baggage. In Christ's wounded hands, our wounds become witness to his grace. Now I wonder, is one of those sentences lighting up for you? I mean, maybe take a moment and, and look at those for is the spirit drawing your eyes to one of them? Is, does one of them make your heart tremble a little bit or do you get nervous when you read it? I wonder if the spirit is leading you to think, to contemplate, to pray about one of those this week. Now, in closing, in order to do this text justice, um, I need to do something else. This is all good news. This is amazing. But how? Like, how? How, how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible for this woman because Jesus makes himself vulnerable at the well. He opens himself up for critique and ridicule and, and being ostracized, marginalized, because he's doing what he shouldn't do. He's become vulnerable to love her. 
And this is possible for us because Jesus became vulnerable in loving us in the most ultimate way on Calvary when he was there naked on a cross dying in our place. And in fact, this passage that we've just read is a foreshadow. There's a foreshadowing of the cross and redemption here that if we have the eyes to see it, it'll do wonderful things in our souls. So let's take a few moments to do this. So to bring this to a close, I want us to look again at that geography, that theology and that history that come colliding together in this place. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, it says Jesus had to go to Samaria. No, he didn't. He could have done what every other Jew did and go, oh, circumvent. Let's go the, no, I'm not going to the wrong side of the track, so I'm going to make this long way around. He had to go. Why? Because he was about to rewrite the history of Israel. He's about to rewrite this woman's destiny. He's about to teach us a new way to live to be human. So he goes here to this place. And, and remember, so much has happened here. This place is loaded with events. God spoke to Abraham here about his people having this land so that they might bless all the world. Yahweh was worshipped here. There was an altar here, yet the terror of sin led people to awful things. Women were raped here. Men were brutally killed here. It was a place where the blessings and the curses flowed into each other. And again, remember, God's people came out of slavery, right? Where did they recommit themselves to the Lord? Right here. Let's, let's look at that map one more time. They came here and they were to recommit themselves to this covenant. And, and here's how it happened. Half of the people, how many tribes? Twelve tribes, right? Half of the people went up to Mount Gerizim. Half of the people went up on Mount Ebal. The priests stood in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's presence, and the priests spoke the word of God, all the words that God had given Moses and the people. They spoke them, and then the people up on Mount Gerizim would echo the blessings. When you trust in God, here's the blessings. The people on Mount Ebal would echo the curses. If you don't trust in God, it's not going to go so well for you. They would echo these, and it's like an amphitheater. It would literally pour back in, and the priests would hear the words of blessing and cursing come together there in the valley. Now, all these years later, Jesus comes here to this place of animosity, to this place of blessing and curse. And in the middle, the blessings and the curses meet. And where the blessings and the curses meet, living water spills out, and this woman experiences grace. Where the blessings and the curses meet, living water flows out from this Jesus to a whole city of enemies. Why? How? You see it? In Jesus, our high priest, the blessings and the curses come crashing together. The curses of Mount Ebal that were ours, that we deserved, he took. And the blessings that we could never earn become ours. The curses he took, the blessings become Ours, on the cross of Jesus, he took the curse for our sin. How could he forgive this woman? How could she be free? Because he would bring these mountains together on Calvary. And he became our curse. And we became blessed. The blessings and the curses meet in Jesus, the true priest, who would give us streams of living water. Jesus is the presence of God. That's the Ark, like the Old Testament, the Ark of Covenant, where God's presence is. He's the Word of God. The Word was spoken there in this valley. Blessings and curses come colliding together and waters of eternal life pour out that nourish the soul. Come on. 
the beauty of God's design. And in the place where Jacob's daughter is raped, Jesus brings dignity and honor and flourishing to a woman who has a traumatic sexual past. In the place where men slaughtered each other for political and religious reasons, Jesus brings peace to the enemy at cost to himself. And in the place where God promised good to humanity, but men and women betrayed him, he comes to mend and to heal. And in the place where family betrayed family and brother killed brother, Jesus overcomes barriers and takes an outcast and turns her into a joyful missionary. Three things are forgotten. Three things are forgotten. One, Jesus forgot his grumbling stomach amidst the joy of seeking this woman's flourishing. He set aside his own needs to care for someone else. Two, the woman, she forgot her water jar in her joy and overflowing desire to tell her enemies about what Jesus has done. And three, well, I cheated a little bit. This third one is, is you. What do you need to leave behind to seek the flourishing of your neighbor? What do I need to leave behind? So she left her water jar and went into town. So have you left your water jar? Have you left your water jar? What ways of thinking, what ways of living, what ways of coping, what ways of seeking comfort, what ways of finding meaning, what ways of pursuing purpose and pleasure need to be left behind? Have you left your water jar? Have you left your water jar? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've come to do. To take the curse that we deserve. To give us the blessing that only you deserve. Thank you for redeeming and restoring and reconciling. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy and opportunity to preach your scriptures today. And and Lord, we are thankful that as we come to this table of confession and eating of your grace, that you hear us and you lavish us with your love. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.